Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Well, Thursday three weeks ago was particularly tumultuous. It was the middle of the three weeks of the Greek intensive and we just completed our first major progress test. I finally had the chance to jump on a tram at the end of the day to head home for, you know, those two hours of non-Greek for the entire day, change shirt, brief sleep, return to college. Sorry, Andrew. Um, this isn't part of the act. <laughs> so this is uh, a COVID announcement. We need to be two at the most per pew. So there's Graham uh, Stanton just behind there in the back. We've got a few down the front. And if you could spread out, that would be helpful. We want to be good citizens. Excellent. Thank you very much. Good. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not using this seat here if anybody would like it. I spent all my life getting used to crying babies in congregations. <laughs> This is also incentive to arrive early at chapels, you know. The last year, come up higher. Anyway, I was sitting on the tram enjoying the first chance to catch up with the news in the last 10 hours. And as I'm scrolling through news feed, this is the kind of thing that I saw. A famous actress has just been sacked because of a single post on Instagram. Two headlines down, the chair of the Tokyo Olympic Committee has also stood down because of a passing comment that he's made at a board meeting. It's the same week that Donald Trump was on trial and being impeached for his inflammatory remarks and those with a sporting bent were still reeling from the sudden resignation of Eddie Maguire and heads continued to roll. So then in the next 24 hours, I expect everybody to recognise here the UK head of the international accounting giant KPMG <laughs> stood down because of a comment in a work meeting and the Deputy Press Secretary from the White House was also suspended and then resigned because of a verbal comment. What we say can have huge consequences. A single sentence, even a single word, can cost our jobs, can damage our reputations. In the case of power brokers like Trump, words can cost lives. And as these faces disappear from the screen, we know that this is only a small sampling of what's out there. If you've been scrolling through your newsfeed in the last 24 hours, you might have seen the face of Senator David Lionhelm further indicted for verbal defamation. Or of Meghan Markle, who's been awarded a payout from a British newspaper. Or the Australian Chief of Defence or the Australian Defence Minister or the Federal Attorney General. There are words by these people and words against these people which thoroughly fill our daily news. And they're about words that can make and break lives. Now, we all inherently know the power of words, but as the earlier sermons this week from Mike and Lindsay have been reminding us, how well are we faring at putting such obvious theory into practice? I don't think I've ever met any Christian who verbally denies the power that words can have, but all too many of us might occasionally, might regularly, might all too successfully deny this fact in our behaviour. We saw yesterday in the second half of James chapter 2 how easy it is to say that we believe, 
just like the demons believe. But how well do we put that belief into practice? Here today, as we look at the first half of James chapter 3, we're faced with that same question. How well do we practice our acknowledgement of the power of speech? I reckon we could just stop the sermon here. It will not take too long for the sheer, the sheer gravity of James's warning to sink in for us. There's a slim chance that you might be like me and be in regular denial of the problem. So I reckon I could give you just 10 seconds, 20 seconds to reflect on your last week, perhaps even just the last 24 hours. Are you conscious of someone that you've offended with your words? Can you think of something you might have said or posted that could have caused offence that you didn't think about at the time? Have you been in one of those awkward but fortunate positions that I found myself in in the last few weeks where a student or a friend or a family member might come to me and actually tell me, do you realise what you said hurt this way? When Brian introduced the letter of James to us last week, he reminded us of how many images that James uses to communicate, and we're familiar with many of the graphic metaphors that we find here in chapter 3. In the middle of the passage, we find some of those really famous images, a tiny spark like that from a cigarette butt or a piece of farm machinery can set whole forests ablaze. We watched last year as parts of California were under wildfire, and one of those wildfires burned a whole 28 square kilometres just because of a firework at a gender reveal party. And then James turns from forest fires to his latest zoo visit and runs through the full collection of different wildlife that's been tamed, but not the human tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And then our final paragraph today, if you're looking at it in verses 9 to 12, simply observes how incongruous it is to discover this. We shouldn't expect salt water from a freshwater spring. We can't expect to go pick olives from a fig tree or figs from a grapevine. So how on earth can we claim to be Christians to sit here in chapel and in our churches and to praise our Lord and Father if we're then prone to curse other humans made in God's likeness? Verse 10 captures James's indignation. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. How are you going with such incongruity in your life? Are you prone to bad-mouthing other people? Do you do it intentionally? Do you do it unintentionally? I suspect James would find it particularly awkward if we catch ourselves bad-mouthing other Christian believers. So even for those of us in formal and informal ministries, how easily do we find ourselves slipping into complaints about our bosses or our Christian colleagues? And mine are listening and bother, I'm now being recorded. If you work for the Anglican diocese or for some other denomination, are your words about those power structures regularly edifying some things cannot mix together, says James, and the tongue is prone, so very prone, to produce speech that's inappropriate for the holy status that God's bestowed on us, so inappropriate for the holiness that he calls us to reflect to his world. And it's something so incredibly hard in our current culture where we mark ourselves off in Australian humour by 
slagging off other people, where we distinguish our own special piece of turf by distinguishing ourselves by what we disagree over with others. I find this comes all too naturally to me. If you ask me about another parish or you ask me about another theological college, for example, my mind springs instantly to the ways in which mine is different and presumably better. I have to stop and discipline myself to draw attention to the 95% of doctrine and practice where we wholeheartedly agree. It's one of those reasons why I'm glad I don't dwell too much in the social media world because I can see that I would all too easily get sucked into playing that game of who's got the fastest and most acidic response. You can probably catch me just doing that in regular everyday conversation <laughs> or talking about the news. Now, you'll notice that in our passage today, James doesn't actually explain the kinds of speech that he's condemning because we find examples spread right throughout his letter. So we saw on Tuesday this week that we can use our speech to discriminate perhaps between different classes of people. We might cosy up to the rich whom we're trying to impress while verbally disdaining those that we judge to be below our station. <coughs> we saw yesterday that our speech might be hypocritical. We might walk around offering blessings on the needy without any intention of helping them. <coughs> and we'll see more examples in the remaining chapters. So particularly next Thursday, hooray, you're a captive audience on Thursdays, when we'll hear about slander and boasting. But neither does James actually tell us what to do in terms of good speaking. And I imagine he would resonate quite happily with lots of biblical and secular wisdom on this point. Some of us just need to count to 10 before we say anything. Remembering James's earlier instruction, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Friends of mine have a poster like this around their dinner table, <laughs> training their kids over many years to think about the power of speech and perhaps training some of their dinner guests. <laughs> Another habit that I'm getting into slowly, thanks Michelle, all too slowly is to pray about conversations that are coming up. Sure, I love to rehearse these conversations in my head when I know what they're going to be, but often I don't know when they're going to happen or which turn the conversation's going to take. So I've taken to praying that while I can't rehearse every conversation, that God might bring to me, whenever that conversation comes about, the sorts of things that I should say for the benefit of those inside and outside the conversation and praying that I'll refrain from saying things that I shouldn't. One of last night's prayers is not just on Thursday, will I say and do that which brings glory to God, but will I be brave enough, smart enough, alert enough not to say and not to do those which aren't good for the gospel? But we haven't entirely exhausted our passage this morning and we don't want to be early for morning tea every day this week. So here are two further insights that I've discovered in this passage. Everybody always says, and in conclusion, I'm not saying that. As Brian said last week, preaching an expository series forces us to confront parts of the Bible we might not otherwise delve into. Now, I'm sure I've heard this part of James mentioned very regularly, very repeatedly throughout my life. And I thought I'd had a fairly good grip on James's key points. But an expository sermon makes me stop and actually study the text. And here are two further points I found that have surprised me. If you've encountered my office window, you might recognise my personal quest to conquer the inspirational poster market. Uh, I'm on a quest to have all inspired scripture earn a hearing along with pretty pictures of rainbows or kittens or butterflies. I'm hoping that more of Amos might get a hearing. 
And the Bible also has some timely reminders for students and other writers. Sometimes you have to look closely. Sometimes writers don't. And while I'm not showing all of my other posters, one struck a nerve and I came back to my office one day to find this kindly plastered on my door. (laughs) And the offending party can't be with us today. (laughs) Thanks, Michelle. And this is where we suddenly realise that this is not just some random verse for sticking on inspirational posters on teachers' doors, but that James's whole chapter about indelicate speaking is introduced by his concern for teaching. And it's true that the whole passage is addressed to the whole church. It's not just a little excerpt that's put here for a select group of teachers, but it draws our attention to the fact that this most prominent kind of speaking one that we can get horribly wrong, is within the teaching sphere. Teachers are more under God's scrutiny. Everyone is prone to stumbling, and teachers in particular should think carefully before volunteering themselves for this extra level of scrutiny. I don't know why they're all sitting in a bunch over here, perhaps for safety in numbers. (laughs) But this is the central command in today's passage. Not many should become teachers. Now, James draws this to everyone's attention in his congregation, and I think because of what he says there and the way he unpacks his passage that he's got a fairly broad view of teaching here. So, yes, it will apply to those of us whom you see up the front of Ridley classes, and we need to stop and think about our motivations and to recognise all too many imperfect motivations that make us the centre of attention. But this passage also applies to all of us in our weekly ministries and the variety of different teaching settings we can catch ourselves in. If you're a youth leader or a Sunday school teacher or a playgroup contributor, you've got a platform where you can influence others. If you lead a Bible study or craft the public prayers, you've got a platform where your words can guide or potentially shipwreck believers around you. If you're the person who chooses the music at church or you're responsible for filling in the gaps between the songs, I reckon James has you in mind as well. You won't need many conversations with me to learn a number of my favourite hobby horses and one of them is I grieve that I meet churches where they pour wonderful energy into rehearsing a song. You can see hours where every semi-quaver and chord change has been refined to perfection. And yet then we just let the singers go off and say whatever springs to mind, to pray whatever comes to mind between songs. Indeed, the very fact that you're a member of a solid church, that you're studying at an upright Western theological tertiary institution already puts you among an elite group of capable Christian teachers. When Christians... Western Christians travel in other parts of the developing world, they're often invited to speak. Now, sometimes that's just nice cross-cultural hospitality at work. But it's also often true that you might have had better exposure to and modelling of good biblical work that many other cultures haven't been blessed with. Two weeks at Ridley that you've already endured might be something more than many church pastors get. And we needn't think just about deepest, darkest Africa or Central Asia. The more I learn about the United States, the more terrified I am that 
a good many denominations can vote you in as lead pastor without any theological qualification. Thank you, God, for two weeks at Ridley. If you have any of these teaching platforms, James warns us to teach and speak carefully. And I reckon along with formal and informal ministry roles, I wonder if anybody with a social media account may be falling towards James's category of teacher as well. If I understand it correctly, one of the basic rules of the game of having a podcast or having a social media account is that my opinion counts. Everyone is jostling on whatever chosen topic to make their opinion heard and heeded. And if we couple that with the speed of reply that's often valued or the danger of the acerbic comments that are expected both in social media and in Australian humour, then there's every need to think carefully before we press post. Again, James says, our words carry weight. All words carry power. And you don't want to be the next person whose career or ministry is tarnished or terminated because of a careless comment you can't retract. And in evangelistic kingdom terms, you don't want to be the Christian who creates a barrier to the gospel because you've planted some seed of offence. Yeah, it's heavy stuff. I hope you're feeling the weight of what James lands upon us here. I have to teach as part of my job description, and this has got me thinking carefully. I have to preach as part of my job description, and at the end of the day, I'm really pleased that I still get terribly nervous about doing this. I might be the only sermon on this passage that you get to hear for the next year, the next five years, the next decade. I think there's great merit in taking time to proofread our email or our social media posts before we press send. Now, we like to think that those who read that 1631 printing of the King James Bible were smart enough to recognise that thou shalt commit adultery was probably a typo. But still, I wouldn't want to be the typesetter who has to front up to God and explain why the word not somehow didn't pass proofreading. The New Testament elsewhere reminds us about correctly handling the word of truth. Now, I also recognise that under this weight, I'm particularly prone to hearing the strong pessimism in this passage, and it is there, and I go straight to the glass half-empty reading. Yes, my tongue is a consuming fire. Some kind people keep reminding me. Yes, I resonate with James's warning. So quickly, how fast can I read through chapter 3, tick it off my Bible reading list and move on to another chapter that I need to feel bad about? And that might be you here this morning in chapel. You might be one of these great people with a tender conscience already worrying about how this morning's text message might have been heard, double thinking whether last night's phone call might have caused offence. I think James would be pleased if you're thinking along those lines that we're alert to our possible miscommunications. But you might miss, like I've often missed, that there's a little bit of encouragement running through this chapter as well. My oversight is partly due to the fact that, as best I recall, I've only ever read this particular chapter of James in the NIV. You'll hear us talking in class about the merits of reading through different English Bible translations. And the NIV lumps the examples in chapters 3 through 6 together into one paragraph, and we've already noticed that those later examples are quite negative, and so I tend to read that into the opening paragraph, the opening examples, because I know where they're going. But if you open something like an NRSV or an ESV, 
there's a split in the middle of the examples, in the middle of verse 5. So yes, we go on to hear that the tongue is powerful and destructive, but James first holds it up to say it's powerful and potentially positive as well. Hey, have you noticed that you can use just this tiny little bit of metal and you can steer a whole horse? Stop. Think. Perhaps talk to the vice principal. A tiny little bit of wood at the back of a boat can turn a whole ship, even one of those giant things that requires strong winds to make it move. Hey, your tongue is like that. It can make big boasts because it can turn whole lives. And yes, James invites us to proceed cautiously. And yes, he warns us not to race hurriedly into teaching roles. But there's also this moment's encouragement for those of us who do teach more formally or even less formally. A good word here and there can guide in the same way a whole person's course positively. Perhaps you can think of that passing comment that steered something in your life. You'd be a great children's minister. You'll really enjoy theological study. Have you ever noticed how God's wired you to deal with this particular demographic or that particular foreign culture? Sometimes a godly word might even steer us towards a teaching role. And in our teaching roles, our godly words can help guide people constructively. Now, again, this doesn't undo James's strong and repeated warnings about the tongue, but perhaps it helps soften them a fraction. James doesn't end up entirely glass half empty, such that we never dare open our mouths again. But he does leave his passage hanging on this note of perplexity. And it's as if this entire passage runs this way as we conclude. Not many should become teachers. Our words are powerful and God is keeping a close watch on them. These words can guide a whole animal or a ship and they can also destroy whole forests. And we find that there are two ways to live, two possible outcomes at work. And I think James is offering us this choice that we might choose wisely and apparently unlike many in his congregation, that we might speak wisely. And so we close the sermon with a prayer. This is a prayer that we might often utter at the start of a sermon. May the words of our mouths as well as the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.